0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Villanova English Department podcast. This week, I'm going to be talking with Professor Kamran Jabodizadeh, and we'll be talking about poetry, about lyric poetry, the romantic movement, the new critics. We'll touch on Emily Dickinson, Robert Lowell, and Claudia Rankin, among others. And we're going to basically suss out in a very simple and probably oversimplified way this question of... When we think about poetry, why do we think about something short, on a page, with maybe a bit of a musical element that is kind of about how somebody feels on a certain day at a certain moment? Why is that what poetry is, and why isn't it um, Cyclopses and Medusas anymore, or, or what have you? So we'll get into that, and I think it's a fun conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. <music>
1: I'm Kamran Javadizadeh. I'm an associate professor in the Department of English at Villanova. Um, And I work on uh, poetry with a particular focus on poetry of the 20th and 21st centuries, mainly in the United States, though not exclusively in the United States. And not exclusively, I guess, increasingly not exclusively in the 20th and 21st centuries either. So I'm also interested in the long history of poetry and poetics. I also do some work, um, again, this is more of a recent um, interest in my professional life, Um, do some work in the history of letter writing and epistolarity. Um, It's the kind of writing that we associate with letter writing, whether it's by post or email or these days Twitter, where I'm all too active, I fear. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in the study of poetry and poetics. Um, and, um, I've been at Villanova now for nearly
0: a decade. So you sent me some readings to take a look at, and they talk about lyric poetry and about lyricization, the process by which poetry came to be thought of as primarily lyric in nature. So just to begin with, can you explain please, what is lyric poetry?
1: Yeah, that's, that's um, a, a deceptively difficult question to answer, which is why um, it is a good question to ask. Um, w- what is meant by lyric um, depends uh, on who you're asking and the context in which you're asking. Um, there is a sort of deep historical version of an answer to that question that is traditionally lyric was one of the modes of poetry among many others um, some that are perhaps most familiar to people listening to this podcast would be say epic uh, poetry so um, in ancient greek uh poetry which is where we get the word lyric from lyric is so called because it is poetry or was so called because it was poetry that was uh, meant to be accompanied by the lyre. Um, and that's where we get the word lyric. Um, and that origin sort of carries over into some of the associations we have with the term um, even today. Um, but in other words, um, some of those associations have to do with lyric as a, as a genre that favors musicality. Uh, so a lyric poem is one that privileges the or is particularly interested in the musicality of language the sound of language um, there is a literal version of that so that you know one could imagine um, a lyric poem as being a poem that was not spoken but sung um, to the accompaniment of a music but over the centuries uh, there is also a kind of metaphorical version of musicality that still inheres, I think, in what we think of lyric as being. So that even though it's, it's uh, rare now that when people speak of lyric poetry, what they mean is poetry that is literally sung, nevertheless, uh, it is still the case that um, most people who use that term have it at least as part of what they mean by that term, that there is something like music to the poem that is spoken, even if not sung, um, and so this is a way of referring maybe to the kinds of sound effects, the aural effects that poetry can have, things like alliteration and rhyme and metre and so on um, they create a kind of attention to the the sound effects of language in a way that um, uh, Language that isn't poetic, um, certainly, so novels or other kinds of literary writing that we'd recognize as literary but not poetic, doesn't care about quite as much. So um, it's not that there's no no such thing as alliteration in prose fiction, um, but prose fiction by and large tends to be less invested in that and more invested in other things. But that's true even within the kind of larger category of poetry itself. So lyric, lyric poetry, one thing about it that has seemed to be true since its origins is that it privileges sound and music. Uh, But that's not the only thing we mean by lyric, and here's where the trouble um, sort of enters into the picture. These days, when when people use that term, they mean some other things too. Um, Lyric poems tend to be short poems. So lyric sometimes um, is a way of, of referring to or capturing the scale of a poetic text. An epic, to go back to the example I used a minute ago, would be a very long poem, by and large, right? You don't have short epics um, or long lyrics, um, except in certain special cases, like uh, people aren't sure what the wasteland is. Is it a short epic or a long lyric? Um, uh, But but that too um, is only part of the puzzle. There are other things that we associate with the term. um, And I think the most important of them is when people in my field refer to lyric these days I think the main thing they're identifying is poetry that has as its central interest the representation of interiority. So when one encounters a lyric poem more so than when one encounters something else one understands that one is gaining access to the inner life of an individual speaker. Um, And often um, people use different metaphors to um, or analogies to describe what this is like but often we hear and this is an idea that comes from the kind of romantic tradition and from John Stuart Mill's um, writing about the romantic tradition. And then there's this whole history, which I'm sure we might get into as our conversation goes on about the sort of permutations this takes. But to return to what I was saying, Mill has this um, very evocative description of what lyric is that has remained influential. And that is that lyric is overheard Um, So that the reader of a lyric poem has the impression not that they're being directly addressed by the poet, not quite that, but instead that the poet is speaking in a way to him or herself and the reader is eavesdropping, you know, is listening in. And and actually Mill's image of this is even more evocative than that For, for Mill. The poet is a solitary prisoner, alone in a cell, who is singing a song to him or herself. I mean, for Mill, it would have been himself, but we can expand that without much difficulty, I think, for now at least. And the reader of the poem is a prisoner in another cell whom the poet can't see and who can't see the poet, but who can hear the song. Um, and so l- lyric, uh, that, that association early association and that's now like 200 years old that mill's essay in which he he writes about this um that association has sort of stuck as a way of getting at what seems essential about lyric which is that it gives you access to the interior life to the subjectivity of one one other human being um and because of that um increasingly it has seemed like over the centuries, but particularly over the decades since the 1950s in the U.S., um, lyric has come to serve as a kind of catch-all for what we mean by poetry, period. Um, uh, Virginia Jackson writes, um, who's a, a critic that we might talk about, writes that, you know, sometimes people think of lyric as poetry at its most poetic. So the kind of um, er state of poetry or something, the essential version of poetry and that other things can think, you know, is it possible to be a poem, but not a lyric? Yes. But to the extent that you're not a lyric, you're less a poem, you know, I think would be the, with some, the, the way people tend to use the term now, because we, we overwhelmingly think of poetry itself as the representation of inner life, as musical, as brief, and so on. So that's some of what's meant by lyric. But I think the point to drive home here is that the way we use the term now bears only a kind of um, accidental, or I'm not sure what the right word would be to use, historical or contingent relationship to the original sense of
0: the term. That, that there, it is the same word, but they're naming two different things. Have we taken like a... Um... A subgenre of Greek poetry or Latin poetry, and, and turned that subgenre into the whole genre of poetry. Is that what happened?
1: So that's a really interesting way to frame the question. And I and I think the answer is it's complicated. Um, so I think some people would say yes, we it, we have done some version of that. Now, who who the we is, and when the doing of it has happened. It's it's not like um, a committee met one day, one day in, you know, 1950 and said, uh, from now on, let it be decreed that poetry will only be this one sub- Greek subgenre of poetry. Instead, I think even the critics who would, generally speaking, say yes in answer to your question, would say that this is a process that has occurred. And again, I wanna to refer to Virginia Jackson's words here because she is um, a kind of leading light of this idea that you've outlined. She would say that this is a process that has occurred by fits and starts in over many decades, a kind of accumulation of historical developments have led to the effect that you've just described. Um, so that what was once a kind of subgenre of poetry has now become um, sort of coterminous with what we mean by poetry itself and has kind of crowded out, has elbowed out other kinds of poems that once existed and that seem um, not really to have any air to breathe and and don't get written anymore and, and would get misrecognized even if they did get written because it's not just that people only write lyric poems. In the sense that I was describing earlier, anymore. It's that readers can only <clears throat> read lyric poems. Uh, it, you know, it's a little bit like that, you know, that that sort of old saying, you know, if if all you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. It's as though we've been given us a, a way to read that is retrofitted to the lyric. And so every text we see, we take as lyric because of it. And there's obviously the sort of feedback loop that develops between writing and reading.
0: And is there, um, is there a bit of a mismatch between this idea of lyric as something that is really based in the sound of language and then something that happens with a lot of poetry that sort of um, the layperson would call like modern poetry where it's, it's focused on how the poem appears on the page and where the line breaks are, and there's something a lot more visual about it. Is there some mismatch or disjunction there? Okay, so yeah, so that is a, is a, is a very
1: interesting question. And um, there are a couple of different ways of answering it. One thing I would say is that um, we have seen in modern poetry a replacing, I think, of one kind of musicality for another so um Ezra Pound, who's the kind of um, you know a difficult and complicated figure in all kinds of ways but but uh, but a a leading light of modernist poetry, uh, talked about how modernist poetry would give up the kind of regularity of the metronome, and what he was referring to or thinking about was the kind of regularity of iambic pentameter of the um, traditional English meter. And in its place, substitute something he called the musicality of the phrase. So, um, you know, maybe this is not Pound's analogy, but mine, you know, uh, is modern poetry less musical than, um, you know, pick pick your favorite kind of pre-modern poetry uh, well, I might say to you is, um, jazz improvisation less musical than Beethoven. Uh, you know, to some listeners ears, yes it is. Uh, but of course to others, uh, no it isn't. We mean, uh, our sense of what counts as music has changed. Um, and of course there are sort of edge cases where you would say, um, you know, pick some kind of avant-garde, Uh, musical composer who was making noise and not music, uh, you might say, okay, now we're sort of at the edge of what counts as music. Well, poetry has its own sort of equivalence to that. It it can move away from the musical. There's also, I think, this, this sense sometimes that there is a kind of visual analog to what used to be an auditory phenomenon so that poetry can Can aspire to be musical visually rather than to the ear, and that this can be taken in by the reader of poetry uh, on the page, as you suggested earlier, rather than by reciting the poetry out loud. Um, Whether that has had implications for the popularity of poetry or a decline in the popularity of poetry is an interesting question. Um, The answer is not obvious to me. But I guess the other thing I would say in answer to your question is that that original emphasis on the musicality of lyric, uh, in the ancient Greek sense, um, has diminished, I think, in terms of its centrality to what, um, makes lyric lyric, uh, over the centuries and has been displaced as the kind of central component by instead this uh the overwhelming importance of poetry as the record of interior subject subjective experience um um, so that that is the you know the thing without which a, a poem you know cannot be lyric is is and and that actually brings me to another point that um, that, that I just want something I wanted to go back to from what I'd said earlier that I wanted to fill in because you'd asked, you know, is it the case that um, lyric has replaced, you know, the sort of ancient Greek subgenre has now sort of taken over and is the only kind of poetry that gets written anymore. Um, and I gave you one version of the yes answer, I think to that question. Um, But there's a kind of complicated version of a no answer to that question, which is also true and worth uh, saying. I think what we can say is that that ancient Greek subgenre has, has, even if it's not the only kind of poetry that gets written anymore, it it certainly wouldn't be fair to call it a subgenre anymore. It has become central. But what that one sort of consequence of that is that it has become central, even as it's changed, you know, its characters, uh, characteristics over the over the years. But one consequence of that is that in in um, in the second part of the 20th century, um, for literary historical reasons that we could we can talk about, um, I think. You know, this is when this the phenomenon I'm about to describe happens. There develops a kind of anti-lyric tradition in in poetry, and I'm I'm speaking mainly of Anglo-American poetry because it's the poetry I know best. Um, I mean, far and away, it's the poetry I know best. Uh, but I I sort of concede that that is a um, a kind of limitation of the perspective I can offer here. Um, but, but you started to get, and um, in particular in the 1970s and 80s, 90s, um, a kind of avant-garde tradition in, in poetry that recognized the centrality of lyric and, and seeked to disrupt it and to uh, react against it and to displace the centrality of the individual human subject from its association with poetry, and to do different things uh, to allow poetry to kind of unlock some of poetry's other capacities. Uh, But I think even poets working in that tradition would say, um, they were not, um, they were working in uh, relation to or in distinction from the lyric tradition. It's not as though they were uh denying its centrality quite the contrary they were noting its centrality and um in their own you know very interesting ways sort of complaining about that and rebelling against it and um and so this is the kind of poetry i mean there, there are various kinds of poetry that do that uh but perhaps the most coherent or notable formation of poetry like that um is called the language language Poetry. Um, Sometimes you see it written as L equals A equals N equals G. It's printed that way, the language poets. And this is a kind of avant garde anti lyric poetry that is interested in the sort of materiality of language as such, that plays, that makes poems um, not by sort of wedding them to the subjectivity of the poet who happens to be writing them, but by attending instead to the materiality of language itself. And that um, poems get composed through sometimes arbitrary sort of compositional schemes that are set ahead of time by the poet and are other ways of writing poetry in this tradition. So that's a kind of anti-lyric tradition, which um, is not, I mean, for many years, I think was uh, especially was not really seen as uh, though, though I'm describing it as anti-to-the-central thing, I, I don't think it would be fair to describe it as a fringe movement. In fact, in some ways, that tradition of, of poetry, language poetry or this sort of avant-garde poetry, um, acquired a, a fairly secure perch in um, institutional um, versions of poetry. So a lot of... Um, uh, academic positions, uh, were filled by people working in that, in that mode, um, academic positions, both in the sense of people teaching the craft of poetry, but in particular studying, um, the reading of poetry, which is what I do. I mean, I say I work on poetry, but I'm not a creative writing professor. I'm somebody who works on the, the history of poetry and the reception of poetry and the, and the, and the analysis of poetry. Um, so that's something else that's, that's, I guess, worth noting. It, that is not, I have to say, the, um, the tradition that I sort of trace my own, uh, origins as a critic or as a reader of poetry into, um, uh, I, I, I am, I, I think it's, it's fair to say that I, in terms of my background, I really come out of a, the kind of lyric tradition. Um, and it's, and and that's part of why I'm so interested in it. Um, and what's so appealing to me about the, the kinds of questions that, um, this, uh, Emerging field called the new lyric studies has um, taught us to be asking
0: So can you um, talk a bit about how and why poetry became lyricized eyes over the years? Yeah, uh,
1: I I can um, I can try to do that. I don't I don't know that I have all the answers here um So, um sort of uh, there are there are two two things worth noting i think uh sort of two historical moments that are worth drawing out um and 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 so i want to do that in a minute but first let me just give a kind of overview and say that i think this is a kind of messy process that produces this thing that doesn't look very messy maybe now but it um uh, so so the, there's something arbitrary about saying, oh, it happened here and it happened there. But to the extent that people are telling this story about what's happened to poetry over the last two centuries, the story goes something like this. There was one decisive moment that happens in the period of um, literary production that we call romantic. Right? so. Typically in England, um, this would be the early part of the 19th century. And it happens slightly different times in slightly different places in Western Europe in particular. And then there is arguably a kind of American version of this as well, where poets for their own reasons are becoming increasingly interested in the kind of poetry that I was describing at the beginning of our conversation, and poetry that is, um, that takes as its subject the inner life of the poet. So if you think of a poet like Wordsworth, um, who in fact um, writes poems that he calls Lyric, or um, he and, and Samuel Taylor Coleridge uh, in 1798 um, write the lyrical ballads uh, this uh, this uh, collection of poems that um, I think some of which we'd, we'd um, recognize as lyric by almost any definition. And then Wordsworth goes on or has already begun to and then continues to go on to develop um, a long poem called The Prelude, um, which is in some ways not lyric at all. It's an epic. Uh, it's, a, it's certainly epic in terms of scale but it's, it contains kind of lyric moments. And, um, and part of what I mean by that is that the subject of the prelude is not like the subject of other, most other epics that, that have been written at that point. Um, this is not like Milton uh, writing an epic poem about the fall of man and, um, and the, the war between um, God and Satan um, in Paradise Lost. Uh, it's not like uh, ancient Greek epic, um, you know, which uh, you know i don't I don't need to get into here I'm sure but uh, but instead, the subject of the prelude uh, for Wordsworth is the growth of a poet's mind. so what he's trying to tell is the story of his life and how he became the poet who you're listening to um, uh, Wordsworth's not alone in um, writing poetry that seems to take that as a as its chief interest. Um, I've already mentioned Coleridge, but you can think of uh, the other sort of major English romantic poets as participating in this tradition. So there's a kind of poetry that starts to get written around the beginning of the 19th century, and then there is the uh, reception and influence of that kind of poetry that notes these aspects of it and draws some of them out. Um, uh, There is something uh, about the circulation of um, or the the um, the form that print culture takes in the nineteenth century that privileges certain kinds of um, uh, formatting for uh, the the production and um, circulation of poetry, um, and um, and so you have back and forth between the sort of material context for poetry's creation and circulation and the um, interests and um, creativity of individual poets a kind of back and forth back and forth sort of retrofitting so that certain kinds of poems seem to be getting written increasingly during that period. That's part of the story of how poetry becomes lyricized but part of the story uh, an important part of the story also um, is Uh, a very influential form of uh, literary criticism and uh, academic and professional uh, study of poetry and uh, and writing about poetry um, called The New Criticism. So The New Criticism is um, a kind of loosely affiliated body of literary criticism or group of literary critics writing in the wake of modernism so now we've moved on, we've skipped ahead about 100 years uh, from the Romantic period, mainly in England, is what I was talking about, to um, the, um, the middle of the 20th century, mainly in the United States. And the new critics are sort of developing certain ideas out of the legacy of modernist writing. So out of the early essays of T.S. Eliot in particular. And um, the new critics disagree amongst themselves and even each on um, his own. Um, These are almost exclusively men uh, uh, who who are typically recognized as the influential new critics. But um, some things sort of um, tie this movement in literary criticism together. And so some of the things that the new critics believe are the following, that you can um, divorce the poem from the poet. So if you've heard of the idea of the intentional fallacy, right, you know, um, high school students, I think, are still taught when you're reading a poem to talk not about what the poet meant or what the poet thinks or is saying, but what the poem or sometimes what the speaker of the poem is saying. Um, so that we don't need to know anything about the biography of a poet in, in, order, to, um, in order to interpret that poem well. Um, that what matters instead is, um, is form, um, a kind of formal analysis and a good dictionary. will get you anywhere you need to get. I could, I could give you a poem and never tell you who wrote it, you know, much less when it was written or where it was written. And as long as you knew the language, that would be good enough. Um, there are certain sort of historical reasons why the new criticism became so influential. Some of them, in the typical story that gets told, have to do with uh, huge influx into college classrooms of a new population of students in the period following the Second World War on the GI bill. Um students of varying levels of preparation in terms of their um, their the the background knowledge that they brought to college classrooms. Um, the new criticism became a wonderful sort of tool in saying, well, you don't need to know anything. All you need to be is, say, a speaker of English, and I can give you this poem, and we can look at it together. Now, that set of reading practices, um, for, for better or for worse, sort of lend themselves to this uh, lyricized model of poetry, right? But that way of reading tends to seek out uh, the kind of poem that you could, to go back to that earlier example I gave, the one from Mill, the kind of poet, poem that you could understand as it were, as though it were a song you were overhearing, right? Because in that circumstance, in that example, that very vivid image from John Stuart Mill, and, and, and that's an essay he's writing, by the way, about Wordsworth, um, in that image, uh, you know if you're the prisoner one cell over from the other one singing the song, you don't know anything about who that singer is. you don't need to know anything about who that singer is instead, um, because that singer is um, expressing himself, um, there is something sort of universal about what it means to be human and the language that you share with that person that's all you need and and that in a way is like the the college professor who uh, has photocopied, you know, uh, 50 copies of the same sonnet and passes it around um, to, uh, to their students in class one day and says, oh, don't worry for the time being about who uh, Robert Lowell is. Let's just look at this poem together and pretend this is a bit of language we have just overheard or happened upon and we can analyze it together. The New Criticism becomes very influential. So this is part of what lyricizes poetry. Now, the story gets even more interesting or complicated than that because there is a kind of um, I don't know if you can hear my that was my dog <laughs> shaking her uh, shaking herself that was her collar intact shaking um, the, the New Criticism doesn't only condition, I mean one thing that of course that it would do would be if you were a student in that classroom learning poetry in that way, learning to read poetry in that way, and then if you went on to become a poet yourself, that kind of early education you got and how poetry worked and what are the right kinds of questions to be asking about it and what aren't and how should we think about it would condition the kind of poetry you wrote. So that's certainly part of the story and that's actually a part of the story that I'm I'm very interested in that I've written about, Um, but it's also the case that that way of reading poetry, the new critical way of reading poetry, did things retrospectively to, to poems that had been written in an earlier era. So I have, I have referred a couple of times in, in our conversation here to the work of Virginia Jackson, who is this sort of central critic um, working in this field. And um, her first book is called um, Dickinson's Misery. It's a a book about Emily Dickinson, uh, but as much as it's a book about Emily Dickinson, it's a book about the the reception of Emily Dickinson or the reading of Emily Dickinson, what has been done to our idea of Emily Dickinson by readers of her who came after uh, she was alive, in particular new critical readers of Dickinson, and what the story of how the reception of Emily Dickinson went has to tell us about poetry's arc generally over the last 200 years. So to to be a little bit more specific or explain what I mean by virtue of that particular example, it's it's sometimes hard to say what Emily Dickinson wrote, she published very few poems during her life in the conventional sense. And she published a few in newspapers and so on, but not very many. It's a, it's a, that's a very slim proportion of what we take to be her poems today. Some of what she wrote, she copied out neatly onto um, sheets of paper, which she then folded and sewed together into what we call fascicles. And it was as though she was making sort of maybe an early version of self-publishing, she was sort of making books at home. For what purpose? Um, it's not necessarily, I think, clear, but, um, but it, I guess it is clear that, in, that that practice is not totally different from what publication is. Um, it's not print publication, but it is a kind of private, you know, it, it allowed for a kind of private circulation of her poems. But then she also did other things that are even sort of wilder and harder to categorize like she um, would write a friend a letter and in the middle of that letter she would include a bit of language that to our eyes now looks like a poem but was it a poem was it lyric um hard hard to know how to use a term like that she did things that were still stranger than that like she wrote little bits of language on scraps of paper that she had lying around the house uh, in Amherst, um, most notably on envelopes. So mail that would come to her house, she'd tear off the flap of an envelope at some point and scribble a few notes on it. Now those, Many of those papers were saved by the people around her, by her family, and, and then turned over eventually to editors and publishers who had decisions to make about what, what they were and what to do with them. Those decisions were guided over the years by the kind of theoretical frames through which people read poetry. And so if you have this idea, this is where that, if all you have is a hammer, every you know problem looks like a nail, um, sort of uh, analogy applies, I think. You'd look at a scrap of paper from Emily Dickinson, and if you have the lyric model, the kind of template for the lyric poem in your mind, like a sort of cookie cutter, well, then you are likely to make decisions about how to print, how to edit, how to print and format and present to readers that bit of language in a way that sort of reconfirms the thing you had suspected before you'd ever read the poem, which is that poems. Are the personal expression of the poet who's written them that they are decontextualized and universal and these sort of timeless utterances and so in the most dramatic and egregious examples of this kind of editing editors would take you know little bits of language that were in a letter from emily dickinson that that she had not even put line breaks into that were just sort of written in and and say, oh well, I think I see a rhyme scheme here, and so I'm going to print it as though it were a little stanza of poetry. That's a particularly dramatic example, and I think that's putting the case somewhat tendentiously to, to suggest that this is how all of her poems took shape. But there is a kind of truth to this that um, that because this is the way poetry um, was increasingly read and talked about and written about that this was also the way poetry was sort of packaged and distributed and taught in universities and here is where this idea of the sort of feedback loops develop and so you get a kind of emerging um homogeneity in what counts as poetry that there because of this sort of feedback loop the um the jagged edges uh, that made poems so different and various in earlier eras start to get sort of rounded off or smoothed off. And that happens not only in terms of poems that are getting written in the 1950s and 60s and later, but it happens sort of retrospectively through editorial decisions, through literary critical writing about poems from earlier eras. Um, poets like Emily Dickinson, or to skip. Um, and it's, I think, no accident that Virginia Jackson, you know, is writing about um, Emily Dickinson and, and um, Yopi Prinz, or sometimes her, her collaborator, and, and her collaborator on this um, volume of, of essays called The Lyric Theory Reader, um, has written about um, uh, the, the, the ancient Greek poet Sappho, and her reception part of what Sappho and Emily Dickinson have in common is that their poems survive in fragments and in sort of incomplete versions and much more dramatically so in Sappho's case than in Dickinson's is partly just a sort of the effects of history and um, you know that's what centuries will do Um, but um, because those poets are um, survive in fragmentary forms they they, they're sort of hot sites for lyricization. They lend themselves to the, to the forces of lyricization because lyricization as a sort of historical unfolding wants in some sense to treat all poems as fragmentary. Um, so literally fragmentary poetry is, is sort of perfect for the lyric reader. Who thinks that yes, it, um, any poem is it could be read as though it were a fragment? Well, if I have poems that are literally fragmentary, where there are gaps, where it's a torn bit of paper here or there, that sort of literalizes the metaphor of um, the, the kind of fragmentariness of, of all poetry. So, so you know, how did how did how did this happen? How did poetry become lyric? Um, it, it's it's a complicated unfolding. Um, story that has to do both with the kinds of choices made by poets and the choices made by critics and editors and um, and the reading public um are working
0: together, as it
1: were, um, over centuries.
0: So you wrote an article about Claudia Rankin, Robert Lowell, and the whiteness of the lyric subject. So how is the lyric, as we understand it, bound up with notions of whiteness?
1: Sure. That's a great question. So, and, and thank you for asking, um, uh, about that article. Um, how is the lyric as we know it bound up with the, with the concept of whiteness? Well, insofar as what we mean by lyric, what people have meant by lyric and have taken that term to signify is a kind of universal uh, utterance, uh, by a coherent and recognizable human subject, individual human subject. The conditions that allow us, and when I say us, I mean for the moment, um, particularly readers in the U.S. tradition, but one could extend that um, in various ways beyond the US tradition. The the universal subject has historically, sometimes silently, and and, and then also, uh, of course, at other times, not so silently, been understood to be a white subject. So the very idea of the kind of, you know, Wordsworth in the Preface to Lyrical Ballads wrote that the poet was a man speaking to men. Now there's a lot one could say about that comment. I think what he was suggesting was that there was a kind of um, common register that poetry invoked, that there was a kind of modesty to the form of address in poetry, a kind of intimacy in the form of address that poetry managed. But one thing we have um, learned to ask about a statement like that is, when you say man, who do you mean? Um, For sure, one could lodge a kind of um, feminist objection to or critique of that formulation and that's worth doing. But I think part of what went unspoken because it didn't need to be spoken when Wordsworth says this is that the man he has in mind is white and and that the man who's reading or being spoken to by that other man is also white. this has been part of a sometimes invisible kind of legacy of literary production in the US and in Europe, Um, not always invisible. Um, But I'll tell you how I got started on that essay, that article, which might sort of help to make a little more concrete what I'm talking about here. I was a great fan of the poet Claudia Rankin, who's a contemporary poet, um, visited Villanova's Literary Festival not long ago, which was a great treat. She's somebody I know a little bit because I I used to work with her uh, when I taught at Pomona College when I was just starting out, and she was a very distinguished poet in residence there. Um, I read her book Citizen when it came out in 2014 read it along with everybody else it was this major publication um um beautiful and and very important book of poetry that came out right in the middle as it turned out of the uh, black lives matter uh movement um of the the moment in that movement that came in response to the um to the um murder of Michael Brown and the the riots in, in Ferguson. Um, and I and I read the book with great interest. The book is largely about uh racism in contemporary American life and in the and and about the history and the sort of historical roots of that racism. Um, it's about things like microaggressions, um, but it's also about macroaggressions, it's about the the sort of massive um, historical injustices um, done to Black people in particular, in the US in particular. So, um, I, was, I've read, I read this book with great interest. In the middle of the book, I sort of stopped short, because I saw that there was a line of poetry by Robert Lowell in the middle of it, that she was not putting in quotation marks or anything, but I recognized this line of poetry uh, uh, as a line from a poem by, by Robert Lowell, a poem Um, called Man and Wife, which is a poem that comes in his very important book of um, poetry from 1959 called Life Studies. Um, Life Studies, that book in 1959, is I recognized it in part because uh, I care very much about that book. I've written about it myself. I consider myself to be a Lowell scholar. And and the line sort of leapt out at me. Um, I had no idea what it was doing there. I was confused by it because the line, which in Lowell's poem is about an argument between uh, a husband and a wife, seems to be an autobiographical poem, a poem about an argument that he had with um, his, his wife, Elizabeth Hardwick, his wife at the time Elizabeth Hardwick. He He's addressing her and he says, "'Your tirade, uh, rapid, merciless, uh, "'breaks like the Atlantic Ocean on my head.'" And in Citizen, uh, Claudia Rankine uh, writes, uh, oh, I should, I should be able to quote the, the line exactly, uh, but um, I'm, I'm going to mis, uh, misquote it slightly, I'm sure. She says that if, if you let in the excess emotion, you will feel the Atlantic Ocean breaking on our heads. So it's not an exact quotation, but it's obviously a citation of this moment in Lowell. And I couldn't figure out what an argument between Lowell and his wife had to do with what Rankin was writing about at that moment, which was, seemed to be about the history of slavery. I mean, it seemed in her language that the Atlantic Ocean breaking on our heads was a reference to the Atlantic slave trade. Um, I I mean, I I don't, I I think that's an obvious enough inference to make if you, if you read the book. But I couldn't figure out what the one thing had to do with the other. And then what I did was um, I read an interview that, that Rankin gave in which she was asked about the book, and she said something about how she'd been reading Life Studies by Lowell. And in reading Life Studies, she suspected that what was going on in that book was that Lowell was struggling with the construction of whiteness. And again, I found myself thinking, I'm not sure I know what she's talking about. And that seems strange to me because I know Lowell, his work very well. And I know Rankin's work pretty well too. And I know her too. And I'm not quite sure what she's talking about. I haven't read very many people, if, if any at all, writing about Lowell and the construction of whiteness. There are other confessional poets like John Berryman, for example, who's a poet who is quite explicitly doing something complicated with respect to race, and that seemed obvious to me, but it, you know, there are other poems by Lowell in, in which that topic comes up, but I didn't see it there. So then what I did was I went to the archive and I looked at Lowell's drafts of that poem. And, it, and I, this doesn't happen often for a literary critic, but for me it did in that moment. The hair stood up on the back of my neck because I was looking at the drafts of that poem and I saw that race was all over them. That, that is this poem about a, about, a conver- about a kind of argument with his wife, like a sort of private moment. And, and Lowell comes from this very sort of Boston patrician, you know, upper-class background, and, and they're, they're in their nice, uh, you know, um, brownstone apartment in the sort of Tony part of Boston and having this argument in bed. And, um, and in the drafts of the poem, Lowell is explicitly referring to the sounds of um, African-Americans, though that's not the term he uses, He's, he uses the term Negro in, in the poem. The sounds of, um, of, of African-American life in Boston, elsewhere in Boston, coming in to the, through the bedroom window into their consciousness as they're having this argument. And then I started to notice things about the poem itself, even in its published form, like there is this um, there's this kind of language in the poem about their white skin being turned red by the um, by the morning sunrise um, and and it seemed clear to me suddenly that what Lowell meant, of course, was that it was it was as though their um, excitation or the argument, the sort of rising of passion in them he was expressing in sort of racialized terms as they were becoming red in the sense of like, American Indians. Race was everywhere in the poem. And then it became very interesting to me to observe over the drafting of the poem how Lowell started to excise the presence of this racialized difference from the poem so that what's left in the published version of the poem is just very residual sort of explicit kinds of racialization. And what it revealed to me, what sort of Claudia Rankin helped me see about a poet whom I already knew, was just how much the formation of the fiction of the speaking self of the poet, that thing that we take to be the essential element of poetry, what we can sometimes call the lyric subject, was also the formation of a white subject. And that in order to get the poem into its published version, what had to, what Lowell managed, I don't think he knew he was doing this. He wasn't doing it self-consciously. It was just sort of symptomatic, I think, in some sense, of what the production of poetry looks like often, is that he was forming a kind of white subject. And he was doing so in relation to a kind of black other whom he was whole, you know, sort of both identifying with and holding off at a distance and ultimately pushing mostly out of view to the reader of the poem, of the poem, pushing it out of view. Um, And so, um, and so I don't think that Lowell's was a special case. I don't think he, you know, um, except that I had a kind of special access to it in that moment and that Rankin was part of what made that special and instead what I wrote about in that article that you refer to is the sense in which Lowell's was actually a kind of representative case, a kind of um, uh, uh, Lowell represented a kind of denouement of, of the lyric tradition. Uh, uh, this was the kind of high watermark of lyricization. And so it was no accident that, you know, the, the idea of a kind of universal human subject was relying on the kind of unspoken scripts of whiteness to kind of undergird it. Um, and that Rankin was making that visible. Now, part of my interest in that moment, I was interested in that moment, first of all, just with respect to my interest in Robert Lowell as a poet, and and I felt like I was learning something new about him and wanted to put that into words. I felt also like I was learning something new about the role race, has played in the tradition for which he serves as the kind of one version of a kind of end point or summing up. Um, but then even beyond that, I remained interested in the topic and, and actually what I've said so far is, is basically like the first quarter of that article. I'll go more quickly through the, the remaining parts of it, but just to say, I don't think Rankin's citation of Lowell was, um, a simple one. I don't think what she was doing was simply saying, look at how racist the history of lyric poetry is, and therefore let's wash our hands of it and do something else. Instead, I think Rankin's citation of Lowell's noting the construction of race and racism that had made Lowell possible and obviously wanting to see that clearly. And by the way, Rankin did not know about the drafts of the poem that I was looking at in the archive. It was as though she intuited something about the poem. She could see it because of her life and her background and her genius. And I had to go to the archive to sort of confirm it or something. But, um, I think this, the, where, where the story feels really interesting to me is that I think Rankin is invested in the idea of lyric. I mean, in fact, she has said so in so many words in interviews and elsewhere, that she wants to write a kind of poetry that can represent interiority and that can do the things that lyric poetry does. And... And because of that, um, what she needed to figure out in Citizen was how to take advantage of poetry's capacity to represent interiority without relying on the scripts of whiteness to make that possible. So that's part of what was so interesting to me in that in that article. And, and that's
0: sort of what that article was, was focused on figuring out. And it it circles back in a way to that uh the comment you mentioned about the 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 two prisoners you know uh, one of whom is reciting this poem and the other of whom is hearing it because there's this implicit assumption about what do these prisoners look like you know who were they um in terms of their own identity racial gender all those you know components and if you're trying to kind of essentialize a human being like what does that mean to you you know
1: yeah i i think that's i think that's perfectly well said and um you know part of what um part of what the experience of writing that article helped me understand was the role race had played in my own um education in poetry the fact that i didn't see the whiteness that Sort of suffuses life studies. I had a different kind of language to describe it. I mean, I could under, I could see how the book. I'll give you one other example. It's a very quick example, but it's it's relevant to this. So um, Robert Lowell was very dear friends with the poet Elizabeth Bishop, who's maybe my, you know, when, when asked to name my favorite poet, I've always said Elizabeth, it's Elizabeth Bishop, and I think that's true. She wrote wrote him a letter when she read Life Studies in manuscript for the first time, and she said, "In some ways, you're the luckiest poet I know." And she said, "In other ways, not so lucky." But but what makes you so lucky? And I'm paraphrasing Bishop is that you can write um, you can write about your life, you can write about your family, and all you have to do to make it seem important and representative and not just your sort of private, navel-gazing concern, like who cares. All you have to do, she said, is to put down the names. Uh, because, you know, this is a, you know, like I say, Lowell has this kind of patrician background. The The names in his family are uh, quote unquote, famous and important names in American history, at least to According to one view of American history, the, the view that Bishop sort of assumed as natural, and so you know from her point of view Lowell could seem both personal and public at the same time, and it was the accident of his birth that allowed for both of those things to be true at the same time. She said, "I could write about my uncle, you know, but who would care? He was a, you know, he was a drunk, and he died in Schenectady or whatever, and like nobody ever heard from him." And it's not the same when you write about your grandfather, you know, who, who's, you know, is a very important figure, for instance. So I think what Bishop is naming without having the words to do it or the sort of theoretical framework with which to do it, I think she's naming whiteness there, right? That, or that, that that is a kind of dramatic or particularly sort of exaggerated version of a more common um, um, con, uh, category that you know in which one can be both personal and representative in which one can take one's own experience as somehow universal um, that's a when you describe it in those terms I think you're describing the way white people in the United States get to think about their lives and in citizen Rankin As asking, you know, what if I have nothing to confess or what is an I for me? Who who am I speaking for? Um, so, so, you know, part of, part of, part of what that, um, the experience of writing that essay taught me. Was that, um, or sort of, alerted to my attention was the extent to which I had been educated in, you know, these predominantly white institutions, allied in all kinds of ways, with just the sort of um, the sort of history that Lowell was relying on, and that's why this sort of organizing principle had been sort of invisible to me. It was, you know, my failing as, as, as a reader, but um, but one that you know I hope to. Um, to correct and, and, and see more clearly uh, from here on out.
0: All right, well, um, I think that's a, a fine place to leave it, but thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk with me this afternoon. It
1: was my pleasure, Mike. It was really fun to talk with you, and thank you for inviting me to have this conversation.